Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 132. Lots of new episodes on the way. I spent the weekend editing and preparing for some tremendous episodes. I can't wait to get them to you. I think just like everyone else, I really enjoyed watching the replay of the Masters on Sunday, of course. I'm trying to find what the ratings were because while I really enjoyed the replay of the action, how great was it to see Nance and Tiger chatting about the round periodically throughout the replay? I'm not sure if we will see something like that again. I'm sure the draw wouldn't be the same as it was for Tiger, but would you watch a U.S. Open replay if Phil won? What about Ricky after his first major, or maybe Rory after finally winning at Augusta? You know, for all the streaming and on-demand options that are available now, I sure wouldn't mind watching something like that. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. We're going to get into this episode pretty quickly, but again, don't forget we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tales from the Back of the Range video series is going strong, so thank you to all the previous guests that have contributed videos. Let's see, we have Brandon Wu, Ryan Jameson, Brad Nursky, Stuart Hagestad, Alexa Hammer. I'm sure I'm missing someone, but uh, really, really interesting to catch up with the previous guest. And again, all of their full episodes are available on our website, thebackoftherange.com. All right, my guest on this episode is Barney Adams. Now, if you're in your 30s or your 40s and you followed golf or played golf or you have any recollection of golf equipment in the late 90s, you'll remember the tight lies fairway woods that burst onto the scene in 1995. You know, these days we can't escape the marketing efforts of the major club companies. You know, it doesn't matter if you play Titleist, Callaway, Ping, TaylorMade. Odds are you're well aware that every year they promise a new fairway wood or driver that, you know, goes 20 yards further. They dump millions of dollars into marketing efforts and they're well represented on the PGA Tour. You know, it's a big boy game and they're the big four. Well, Barney Adams was on the outside looking in and somehow got into the golf business in his 50s and created a club that made it on tour. Imagine getting a call from Lee Trevino one day saying, Hey, Barnyard. By the way, his nickname is Barnyard. So, hey, Barnyard, I need one of those tight lines clubs. Uh, the guys out here in the Champions Tour have it, and I need it. Well, Barney took me through the entire story of his company, how they got off the ground, and then the challenges that they faced. We also spoke about a new product that he has developed called the Stability Putter Shaft with his new company, Breakthrough Golf Technologies. Now, I have friends that swear by it. It's been played on the PGA Tour by players like Justin Rose. I have not tried it myself. It's not a product endorsement. I'm really not a gearhead. But the link to the company website is in the show notes of this episode. So go check it out if you're looking to tweak some equipment while we're off the golf course. So you can learn more about the product there. But this episode really focuses on the story of a guy from Texas that basically sketched out a golf club on a napkin that eventually led to millions of dollars in sales and a club that found its way into the bags of some of the best players in the game. So let's get started. Barney, you're at the back of the range. How are you, sir? Well, I'm pretty good. I mean, what the heck? I'm 80 years old. You know, it's, it's all relative. Well, um, and, and I guess in your lifetime, you know, I'm, I'm kind of letting our listeners know when we're recording these episodes because we are in this, 
in this coronavirus age. I mean, have you seen anything like this in your lifetime ever? I, not uh, certainly nothing like this. I mean, I, I remember when people were building bomb shelters. Uh, that was very common. And I remember fears from different things that may or may not happen. You know, be it, I remember polio, for example. Uh, polio sure. was going to cripple the entire nation. And as a matter, sadly enough, it did affect a lot of people. So I can say that I've, I have to admit my memories are, are not clear because I think I try to block it out <laughs> as much sure. as possible. Sure. But yeah, we've been, we've been through some things like this, but is it to this degree? You can't answer that because we didn't have an internet then. We didn't have the communication ability that we have then. If we had, we might've reacted the same way. So who knows? Yeah, no, it's definitely a very interesting and uh, scary time, but hopefully we'll see the other end of this uh, shortly and get back to our normally uh, regularly scheduled lives and, and, you know, we'll be playing more golf and we're going to talk about golf (laughs) with you because, you know, uh, I remember when I started playing in in the, gosh, probably mid-80s, late-80s, and then started playing real seriously in the 90s, um, I remember the phenomenon of the tight lies fairway wood that you invented. The, you, this is the same Adams that uh, everyone has seen on the bottom of one of those clubs. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I know you have a uh, you know, the new stability shaft with your new company, Breakthrough Golf Technology, that you are uh, very proud of, and I want to ask you about that as well. But let's take it back a few years. Um, I kind of like to get a little bit of a, of a base as to when a guest gets interested in the game itself. When did you start playing golf? Oh, mid-50s, early 50s. Um, I worked at a golf course, and I was, uh, I did, you know, clean clubs and cleaned everything and, you know, uh, move stuff around, just did whatever. Just, I was a, I was a handy boy. I wasn't exactly a man that was a handy boy, but, uh, in that, in that circumstance and the club cleaning, because the people, everybody had push carts in those days. This is before golf carts. And there would be this big uh, room full of push carts with clubs. And my job was to go from one to the other and clean the clubs off. So the people, when they came the next day, you know, et cetera. And what I noticed was that in the bags, the long irons were almost never dirty. Right. And I never forgot that. I guess that was the beginning. <laughs> well, that definitely translated to later in life. Now, you didn't start in, in club manufacturing or club design. You didn't start till I, I guess, your, your mid-40s? So, Actually, I was 50 years old when I started Adams Golf. Wow. Okay, so that's, you know, when I think of people that get into the golf business, I'm thinking that they are – I'm not thinking that they're in their 50s, so you got to explain to me how that happened where you started in a very competitive, massive business uh, in your 50s. I wrote a book called The Wow Factor, which was about my life in golf. And in there, I used the line that there is a fine line between entrepreneurism and insanity. (laughs) Okay. And and I've actually, I actually found out, I, 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 did a quick talk at an entrepreneur session at a school that that's been used before. I thought I invented the line, but I didn't. And so it just gives credence to it, I guess. But I, it was always something when I look back on it, I didn't really, I didn't realize it as much at the time, but when I look back on it, being in the golf business was always something 
that I wanted to do. When I graduated from college back in uh, 1960, I sent letters out to each of the manuf- golf manufacturing companies uh, just to see if they would hire me, and and nobody did. Uh, a couple of them were nice enough to say, look, you got to get some experience first. You don't have any. Just to do something like that, I didn't think so much of it at the time, but looking back on it, it obviously is a signal that I was very, very much enamored with the idea of being in the golf business. And over the years, I would fool around with clubs and, you know, do whatever. And then in the, I got I got introduced to a guy, play golf with him at an event or something like that. And he says, I, I need you to meet Dave Pels. He said, you two guys are both nutcases. You, you yeah. guys will get along fine. And I worked with Pels well before I went into the business on my own. And I... Actually, was uh, I was working in the Silicon Valley, and you know, doing that, I worked as a turnaround guy for some investors. And the Pell's company at that time had come up with the Featherlight golf clubs, if you remember those. And they were struggling. It's you know, it's a it's a tough business. And they contacted me and asked me if I would come to Abilene, Texas, to help run the golf club company. So I left the Silicon Valley and. Uh, uh, I was uh, single at the time and uh, loaded up my car and drove to uh, Abilene, Texas, where they had three colleges, none of which allowed dancing. So okay. you might say it was a cultural difference from uh, the San Francisco area. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I didn't care. I didn't care. <clears throat> Actually, I really liked the people in Abilene a lot, still do. And the company was was failing the oil business was was crashing. The, the investors were oil people, and they had major problems of their own, which eventually broke them. As a matter of fact, I didn't care. I just the chance to be in the golf business I, again. It's irrational when I talk about it today, but at the time, it obviously was something that just prevalent because that's what I did. Yeah, I'm sorry. When, when uh, Bell's left to do the short game schools. I just decided that I was going to stick around and do it on my own. And that's how I got started. And that was in the late eighties. And then I realized that, uh, I had to at least get to a little bigger environment, uh, people wise. Uh, so I moved the company to Dallas, Texas. I think it was 91. I might be off a year or so. I can't remember anymore. But, uh, when I say moved it, I mean, I moved it. Sure. Rented a truck, and my back is still bad from some of the stuff <laughs> I carried around. And I, I say, then, and then I started over again, yeah. effectively in in Dallas. And the the tight lies to answer your question, is when you look back and see how things happen, it's just it's just strange because a guy, a teaching pro by the name of Hank Haney, had started up a, a teaching facility uh, north of Dallas called the Haney Ranch, and I had never met Hank, and I drove out there looked at his facility and it was, it was an old horse ranch and it went into the barn like uh, area, uh, was empty. So I went up to him, introduced myself and I said, I'll go down there and I'll set up a repair shop, assembly repair, whatever it is. My idea was, of course, if I got there, I could sell stuff. And he said, sure, it's an extra service. It didn't cost him anything. It was an extra service for the ranch. And so I got started there. And I learned that uh, it didn't make any difference, even though I had clubs that by that time that I had designed, nobody was interested. So I started custom fitting. And back in those days, nobody really did much in the way of custom fitting. It was a very unusual practice. I learned that by selling the service of custom fitted golf clubs, I was able to sell my own product. 
and that's when I learned that, or reinforced anyway, that you never really sell a product. You're always selling a service. And when I defined my service as custom fitting, that got me started. And I mean, great information there that I kind of want to unpack, but, and I'll, I'll ask you a question later on about if this can be replicated. The thing, the thing I want to ask you about is, you know, you just mentioned, you know, you couldn't get them to use your clubs and you had to kind of, uh, you know, provide a service and get credibility. You mentioned that when you started, you were cleaning the clubs as a kid and you noticed that the long irons were always clean. Is that kind of what made you target specifically fairway woods with tight lies? Because, you know, we've all heard of, you know, the new big drivers and that go 20 yards farther and, you know, maybe new, a new putter and, and, and new wedges. But, uh, you know, it's really, I can't think of too many and obviously hybrids, uh, you know, th- it seems like this was this birthed hybrids. But how did you know to focus on something like that that really isn't a scoring club? And it's not the club that everyone goes out and whacks on the driving range that uh, so they can hit it far. As a custom fitter, my job was to help people, of course, you know, hit the ball better. And basically, custom fitting is A and F, airborne and forward. If you don't get the ball airborne, you lose. If the ball's not going forward, you lose. So what you do has to result in getting the golf ball A and F, airborne and forward. Okay. In those days, especially in those days, that's that was kind of the beginning of the deeper face drivers. And fairway woods were kind of a oh by the way club. You know, you made a driver, then you just made the fairway woods look like the driver with more loft. And that was your set, and you were supposed to buy them in a set. Right. Well, when people stood up to these deeper-faced fairway woods, they couldn't get it airborne. And my fairway woods at the time were like everybody else's. They weren't very good. So I remember going around to all of the golf stores or shops or any place that I could find in the Dallas area to get some fairway woods that were easier for my customers to hit and I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't find any. So one evening and and we had a little shop in in uh, in Plano actually adjacent to Dallas uh where there were, we had three employees including me and that's where we did our uh, assembled the the clubs that I was able to sell and I would go to that shop in the morning and work there till about 2 in the afternoon and then go out to the Haney Ranch where I would do the custom fitting, and then I actually wore the apron and did, you know, grip changes and so on until the place closed about 10 o'clock at night. And one evening, rather than going home, I sat there and I sketched out what I thought this fairway wood, fairway wood ought to look at look like. And for some reason, which I've been asked a million times and I have no answer, the word tight lies came to me. And so I just wrote it down when I sketched the fairway wood and I had some contacts in uh, Taiwan through my days with Tells and so on. And uh, I said it to this one guy that I knew, and I said, make me some like this and call them tight lies. And it was that it was, today, with, of course, we have computers and algorithms, right. and, you know, all kinds of sophisticated. This was a hand sketch drawing. Wow. And I faxed it to him, <laughs> and he got it, and he replied, okay, I got your fax. I'll send some back. And I don't know what it was. A month or so later, I got some pieces back, some club heads. Right. And I shafted them up and took them out to the range. And the people hit them well. And I thought, well, that's it. I'll get some. And I'll, I can now I can do a better job custom fitting. And in my mind, 
that was it. That was, I had accomplished what I had set out to do. And it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any, any concept of doing anything beyond that. Things started to happen on their own. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. When did, when did yeah. things start? Because you're just you basic. So it sounds like to me, you're creating the tight lies as a tool to improve and increase your service and customer base right there at, Hain at Haney's Ranch. When did it become apparent that I might have something here that's a little bit bigger than just just staying on the ranch? Yeah, <laughs> I can remember, uh, you know, one phone call I got, you know, as we say in Texas, a good old boy. And it was like, Are you the guys that make that that tight club? <laughs> yeah, I played with Jeffrey the other day. And he can't hit it that good. I got to get me one of those. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I never forgot that call. And, you know, things like that would happen. People would come in and ask, you know, my friend George, you know, you fitted him. I don't need to be fitted, but I need to get one of those fairway woods and that kind of stuff. So this you know, is just word of mouth, just word of mouth. Yeah, like absolutely. It was starting to have a life of its own. And I, and I, I thought, okay, I got this. And then, uh, I got a phone call one night from Lee Trevino oh, and, and it was like, yeah, right. Who is this? And right. I hung up <laughs> and then it rang again and he said, barnyard, don't hang up. It's Trevino. Right. And I actually knew him. I played at a place where he played uh, Preston Trail in Dallas. Yeah, I guess eventually I played there. I can't remember, but anyway, he said I got one of your fairway woods. He said it's phenomenal, and I'm associated with Spalding. Right. And I'm going to set you up for a meeting in Spalding. And he said I suggest that you use my agent to negotiate with him. You know all of the stuff. I'm thinking, you know, wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah. Well. The Spalding people said they weren't interested. They had plenty of products of their own, and they just weren't interested in this concept. Sure. Which Lee thought, let's say, colorfully, he didn't think very much of their decision. Right. But that was life. But that gave me an idea. I thought, well, you know, I, I've always been a student of the industry. I mean, I had to be because I was so small and I was always struggling that I paid attention to what sold, who sold it, how it sold, how did it work you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It really in, in minute detail. So I made a list of about five companies that I knew could really benefit from having the tight lies because this was the era now where the big guys were starting to really get established. The golf industry is dominated by four companies and has been for almost 40 years. And that's Ping, Titleist, Callaway, and TaylorMade. And that was just beginning in those days. You could see their domination increasing every year. And as a result, the other players, and there were several at the time, their market share was decreasing. So I thought, well, these are the guys, because they still had sales forces, right. and they still had somewhat of a market presence. I'll get a hold of them, and they can have the tight lies. We'll work out a deal, and you know, we'll go through life hand in hand, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, nobody bit. Nobody was. I called uh, McGregor. I called um, Wilson. I called uh, uh, Tommy Armour. I called uh, Arnold Palmer. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple others, but they weren't interested. And I have to tell you a story. When I called the Palmer Company, I forget the guy's name, and I knew him, but it, it's irrelevant. And I, but I did know him. And he said, Barney, I love your club. I got. I use one myself, <laughs> and uh, I would like to do a deal with you, but we're going to come out with a, a revolutionary product and we, we're 
our salesmen just got their samples and we've got them all vans and this is going to change the game and we have to concentrate on that. So naturally I said, wow, that's, that's terrific. Do you mind telling me what it is? And he said, no, because really we're going to, this was like on a Thursday or Friday and we're going, we're, they're hitting the road on Monday. He said, we have designed graphite shafts for irons where the top part of the shaft is kind of floated out oh. and you don't need a grip. Oh, so you just you 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 address the club with your hands on the graphite shaft itself, and being the very sophisticated person that I am, I blurted out, "That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life." Yeah, because when you work with graphite, and I had worked with lots of graphite, if you get a sliver of graphite in your hand, of course, it oh my god, it swells up. You you know you're you're disabled. I mean, it's it's horrible. I mean, the last thing that you want to do is have flesh to graphite grips. Because <laughs> I was such a jerk, he kind of coughed. Oh, well, you know, well, we're going to go for it. You know, that type of thing. You yeah. know, it was an unpleasant moment. It broke the company. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking that wouldn't those clubs get damaged every time they're getting slammed into a bag also? With no grip? It was... Uh, it just, like I said, it was the dumb. It was the dumbest. I mean, I, here's a guy like me that wears an apron that works with clubs, right? And all I can say, it was the dumbest idea I ever. You know, it was just. Yeah. It was, I can think of ten reasons why it was awful. So, I mean, but it was an immediate reaction. That oh, was kind yeah. of the funny part of the story. It was like the same breath. Right. Oh, thank you for telling me. That's really a dumb idea. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. So you, you so obviously so the so the big four you you stay away from and then you you shop right. you shop it around to maybe a half dozen other ones, and now you right. have this great product that, I mean Lee Trevino I mean that's that's high praise because Trevino is right. I mean that's that's high praise. Well now what? Yeah, it's well, actually what do you it's do? actually sneaking its way out of the tour by that even though I didn't know how that some of them got there. Right, but yeah, it was showing up on tour. Right. So the other guys weren't interested. One of my customers ran the largest, um, it was mail, of course, in those days, where you, a mail order type of thing, where you have a mailing list and you send out a product thing and, and you know, you sell so many products from there and so on. And he explained the whole thing to me. It was a big deal. And he said, look, I'm going to put the tight lies in there. He said, it's a new product. It's a great product. You know, you're going to reach my first mailing goes to like 2 million people or some huge number like that, whatever yeah. it is. Zero response. Whoops. He said, I've never gotten <laughs> zero response before. <laughs> well, and, so and I guess that didn't work. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and I guess my question, like, how did you get players? Well, why don't you, why don't you keep going with the story? Because I feel like, I'm, yeah, keep, you keep going. Yeah, just keep telling me how this thing turned into Adam's Golf. How's that? Okay. Well, then I had another customer who was in the infomercial business. And he explained to me what an infomercial was because I did not know what an infomercial was. Right. And uh, I, I knew his who, who he dealt with. There was a gal in Dallas. I always remember her name. Her name was Susan Powder. Oh, yeah, the, five, a, the, the, the Stop the Insanity lady. Yes, and she had a crew cut. That's what I remember yeah, yeah, about her. Exactly, she was, yeah. She, she, she was a character, and she, and he he managed her infomercial, and, of course, she she sold products. You know, she did physical fitness stuff, but she sold products, and they were, they were killing it. They were making a lot of money. Yeah. And he said, your product is perfect for a TV infomercial. 
and you know you need to go speak to the people at Guthy Renker because they are the they're yeah. the major domos of the in, infomercial industry. I, I, and all of this, by the way, I'm taking notes because I, I had never heard of anybody. Well, the irony is that the Guthy Renker, I live in Indian Wells, California now, and the Guthy Renker headquarters is down the street. You're kidding. You're that's kidding. Kind of, no, I'm not kidding. And that's kind of the end of the story. But so I get in an airplane, I go to California, I, I arranged a meeting with the Guthy Renker people. They see the they say, oh my God, they're all golfers, as it turns out, and pretty good ones. One of them I've actually played with. And they, this is, we wondered about this club. This is perfect for us. This is, you know, blah, 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 blah. Here's a contract. I'm keeping this short, relatively. Here's a contract. Take it back to Dallas. Have anybody take a look at it, and we're in business. I get back on the plane. I'm starting to read the contract on the plane. And the best I could figure out is that. The, the relationship would have been about 90-10 in their favor. Yeah, of course. Now, they were the big boys, and I was nothing, so that's the way it works. I get that, okay? But then I started to think, well, you know, because you, when you're independent, you know, you just think that way. Well, what we can do this. I mean, what, what are they doing that we can't do? Well, okay, you got to get the show made, all right? We've, we've, we knew people that did that, and I mean, I called a guy in Dallas that I knew and he gave me some names, you know, that kind of stuff. So we could get the show made. Then you got to buy TV time. Yeah. And we found out who the TV time people were. And that is another story completely separate in of itself. They were from, I think it was Iowa, but they were what we call trannies. They were transcendental meditation people. And you had to call them at certain times a day, et cetera. It was, it was an experience, but anyway, we made our own show, bought our own time, put the show on TV and the, and, and we were purely lucky. I do not want to pretend at all that this is any genius on my part. We were purely lucky because this paralleled the time that the golf channel was starting and the golf channel had material for the day, but basically nothing at night or nothing, even in the evenings. So their airtime was for was for sale relatively inexpensively. So between that circumstance and the show in the club, in our sales went from virtually you know nothing, you know, hundred thousand bucks, to approaching a hundred million in a year and a half. Holy! All right. By the way, you're allowed yeah. to say shit on here, so I'm just going to say it. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it was. And by the way, I've been asked a million times. How did you manage that? And the answer is we didn't. Well, see, we just, that that was the you question. You just survived. Right. See, that's actually exactly where I was going. You're thinking, oh, my gosh, let's start popping corks and champagne, and we're, we did it. We're rich. But now you got a big problem on your hands. you got to get this product out and fulfill these orders. Oh, so, listen, we had, we had 120. We ended up with a, over 100 employees. I remember, you know, when we moved into our final building, uh, I had a I had a great piece of luck. I had a guy that I went to school with actually that was in the building management type of business. You know, he had done it for big corporations and he was living in the Dallas area and he, he took over helping me, you know, get a facility and so on. And I went into that facility before it was, we moved into it and it was so big. I remember this as I'm sitting here, it was so big and so empty that I turned around and walked out. I couldn't relate to it. <laughs> right. it, it just, it just, it was overpowering. But anyway, we ended up in this big, huge facility. I forget how many square feet it was. So 
I don't know. I, honestly, God, I do not remember, but it was a lot. We had over 100 employees. By that time, the word had gotten out, the tour pros. We had no tour rep. We didn't We didn't do any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the word had gotten out, and they're, you know, they're being curious. They tried it. And the, the, on tour, you know, there's a kind of a wildfire effect. If one or two guys are hitting it and they really like it, then the other guys on the range see it. Then the next thing you know, 20 guys have it and so on and so forth. So now we had tour usage. This infomercial is on the Golf Channel. It's it's, and I loved infomercials, by the way, for this reason. If I had to buy a, a time, which is the way it works, let's say in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and I had to buy time to run the show, I knew within two days if we sold enough to pay for the time. Right. And boy, when you're a little company, because you know the old adage in advertising. I know 50 cents of every dollar is wasted. I just don't know what 50 cents it is. Well, infomercials take care of that. I, you know, we knew within a day or two when we ran a show, whether we sold enough to pay for the show. Yeah. And we never were trying to sell high volume on television. We were trying to sell enough to create a buying interest so the retailers would then talk to us because the retailers wouldn't give us the time of day in those days. Right. So all you're really trying to do is just get a little bit of a a green movement in that area. And all you need is, yeah. is, is three or four guys to come in over a weekend or a dozen guys to go to the local, you know, uh, uh, Edwin Watts or Nevada Bob's or whatever and say, hey, you got that Adams Club, and then finally they're like, we got to get this Adams Club. That's all you were trying to do. Yeah, then, in right? fact, it, it, was, it was really, it was funny. One of the lessons I learned from that is golf clubs are not sold. Golf clubs are bought. There's a huge difference between those two situations. Explain that. When, golf, when a product is bought, that means you have to incent a buyer to turn off the TV, to get out of his chair, because it's mostly males. It's 52-year-old white males on average. Right on average, you've got to incent him to turn off the TV, get up and go buy something. This is before you can buy them online. That means you've got to market the heck out of it. I'm jumping forward now, but I, I over the, since I've retired over the years, I've gotten oh, dozens and dozens of calls from people who've got wonderful product ideas and want me to help them market it and so on and so forth. And I say, well, I, you know, and they almost always want to send me a product to try and so on, which is fun for me. So I try and I say, hey, your product is really good. Do you have about, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 million for the first couple of years, another, another 20 million. And they laugh and they said, well, of course not. We wouldn't be talking to you, you know, and so on. I said, well, then don't do it. Yeah. And they get, now I'm, now I'm being, I'm crapping in their, in their right. brain, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. <laughs> And I said, well, let me explain to you the way the game works, okay? In order for you to remember, golf clubs are bought, and in order to incent the buyer, you've got to get the message across that your product is good enough to be played on tour, period. What does that mean? That means it's expensive. Now, you're going to jump to a conclusion, and you're going to tell me, well, we can get some guy, you know, maybe one number 120 on the list, and it won't cost very much. And I say, you're better off taking your money to the racetrack because if he doesn't show up on television, it doesn't do any good. Right. It's a television. The PGA Tour is television entertainment, period. And if you don't get focused on that, then you've got no chance of selling your product. The cost for that, to get two or three, or, or and it can't be two or three, excuse me, guys, because one gets sick or hurts a knee or something like that, 
you sure will pay them and they're not playing. Right. You've got to get, you know, five or 10 guys. So you, you get your, you get your day in court on tour on, on TV, so to speak. That's, you know, easy, easy, 10 million bucks easily. I'm probably being conservative, but that isn't enough. I can give you cases where products have shown up on tour and then disappeared because now you've got to advertise and, and, and educate the population as to why the tour players are playing your clubs. That's advertising dollars, big, big money. I said, and I haven't staffed your company or, you know, rented a building or on and on and on. I said, you're looking at 20 million bucks the first couple of years. And it takes about three to five years for this message to resonate. So unless you've got big bucks, you're not going to make it. So, and I want to get to when Adams, I mean, literally, you know, you had Tom Watson playing Adams clubs. You had, you, you sponsored a developmental tour, uh, you know, the Adams pro tour. Yeah. I mean, it really, really took on a life of its own, but, but just as a sidebar, I just have to ask, when I'm watching that guy Jack Ham with the hammer, the the hammer driver, I think is what it was called. Mm-hmm. And when I'm watching yep. Warrior Golf give away their hybrid for, I think you just basically pay shipping and handling. And I think now right. they have like the stand up putter. When I see that stuff, none of that's on tour. I mean, at least your clubs were being played on tour. You had a, a groundswell of, of of everyone really playing that stuff. That stuff is never going to make it on tour. How did those companies and those products actually turn a profit? Or I mean, most of them don't. Okay, because I've always watched. Here's the bottom line. Okay, yeah, explain that whole thing to me because I think everyone sees the commercials on Golf Channel. They're like, sure, who buys this shit? And well, now you've got what they call short because see, we did a our infomercial was a half hour on television, right? And the rule of thumb is that your product cost uh, has to be the multiplier has to be eight times. So if it costs 10 bucks, you're going to sell it for 80 and so on and so forth. That was, that was the formula back then 30 years ago. Now, gosh, I don't know what it would be 30 times, maybe 40 times because TV time has gotten so much more expensive. See, you don't see half hour infomercials anymore. I don't don't know. Maybe there's one on channel 4,016, you know, at 3 AM, but for all practical purposes, no, what you see are short form, infomercials 30 seconds and that's where you'll see like the stand-up putter and so on that's where they're that's where they're being done or or now of course on the internet right and that's where you also see them um, much more prevalent is on the internet but here's a here's an interesting um something for you to kind of a left way left-handed way of answering your question putters are the base of people's generally speaking are the base of people's ideas you know everybody comes up with an idea for a better putter okay there's hundreds of putter designs. There has never been an independent putter company in the history of the golf industry that hasn't gone broke. That pretty much tells you everything. Now, my definition of broke is, well, we can't afford to advertise. Uh, We'll have a website and we can sell some off the website. That's fine. That goes on all the time. But I don't mean to be cruel, but those are basically hobbies. Those aren't businesses. Right. They're not buildings and people and all the stuff that go on with the business can't scale. it. So yeah, the guys are putting them together in his garage and so on and so forth. It's, it's a big boy game. It's a big boy marketing game. And these, these individuals that you're talking, 
Ham hasn't done anything in years, I don't think. But, you know, these people that you're talking about, they accumulate some money. They buy the short-form infomercial or something on the Internet or something like that, and they sell enough to maybe pay for the time, and then they disappear. And then they may come back. And I know you've seen this because you'll see something will show up and you'll say, gosh, I, I thought they were gone. You know, right, all, all right. of a sudden they've reappeared again. Well, maybe, you know, the guy's friend has decided to buy the company from him and he takes a shot at it. Or There's a million variations, but they're not in business. And they're not. They think, well, if we get some exposure, one of the big companies will buy us. Right. And then life will be good. And the big company are saying, look, pal, We've got millions of dollars invested in engineers and, you know, testing departments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, you can't compete with us. We're so far ahead of you that, you, you, you know, you're wasting your time. And that's basically the case. Yeah. So, so Tight Lies takes off. You get involved with the developmental tour. You, you have guys on staff. You have Tom Watson playing. And, I, and, and tell me about the first time you met a, like a Tom Watson or, or maybe tell me about the first time you really started getting involved with, you know, having these players represent your brand? Well, Watson's agent called me, and that coincided with Ram Golf going out of business. And, of course, he was on Ram staff for 100 years. Yeah. And he was looking around for a new sponsor. Uh, and Ram, by the way, was one of the ones that I couldn't remember before okay. that just got eclipsed by the big guys. You know, the story goes on. And, by the way, just I, I, just to give you some more fodder, yeah. when we were uh, active, we had about – I'm going to guess about 4,000 pro shop type accounts across the country and about an equal number of what we call retail doors, you know, retail stores. Today, if you were in the golf business, you've got roughly the same amount of pro shops, although they do less business, and maybe five retailers. Retail golf has gone away. It's been, it's been, they've either, either, closed up their doors like golf Smith and Edwin Watts and people like that, or they've been accumulated by bigger companies. And now instead of calling on a, a retailer, who's a guy that plays golf, he's got his own store and he loves the game. You're into a buying office and you might be selling to somebody that doesn't even play the game. Cause I've had that experience. So it, the landscape has changed dramatically with Watson. When now getting back to your question, his agent calls me, they wanted to, maybe play our fairway woods. He, you know, he was trying to make the best deal he could, which sure. meant he might have me working with two or three different companies. And, uh, he said, well, you don't make irons. And I said, actually, we do make irons. Uh, even though we're known for the tight lies. And I said, I, I would like to, uh, you know, at least present my irons to Tom. He said, all right. He said, send some up and Tom will hit them. This is send some up from Dallas to Kansas. And I said, no, no, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to take them up because I want to be there. Yeah. All right, we'll set that up. So I go up to Kansas City, uh, go over to Wolf Creek Club where Tom uh, plays and practices. I never met him before, or I think I had met him once, but anyway, it was irrelevant. And he says, hi, Barnyard, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hit about uh, 15 or 20 shots with my irons, and then I'll hit 15 or 20 shots with your irons, and we'll see. Fair enough. He proceeds to hit 15 or 20 of the most beautiful golf shots I'd ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> And I'm ready to leave. You're like, hey, what? <laughs> There's no win here. This doesn't work. And he takes my irons, and he hits 15 or 20 of the most beautiful golf shots I've ever seen. And he turns around and he says, I can play with yours. I said, okay. We shook hands, and I left. 
I was there maybe half an hour. So now we get down to the negotiating thing, and we work out a deal with him and so on and so forth. And, he, and, now, and part of the deal was I wanted him to come down to Dallas and, you know, appear in front of the employees because that would, you know, he, after all, he's Tom Watson. Right? Yeah. That would be a huge deal. And he did. He was very gracious, and he was very nice, and we're getting ready to leave. And I said, well, I'll see you. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, Tom, the way it works uh, in, over the years is when a smaller company like us gets a big name like you, the CEO shows up on tour with his pals so we can have, you know, show all of his friends that he's actually good pals with the touring pro and blah, 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 you know, get his picture taken and so on. I said, do you see that room over there? And he said, yeah. I said, well, see, that's my office. And I'd appreciate it if you don't come in there and I won't come to your office. Good luck. And I shook hands with him. And that's, that was our relationship for several years. I bet he really was. I bet you threw him back a little bit with that. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's just the way it was. And, uh, the, the irony is that today we're, 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 we go fishing. I mean, we're good friends. We communicate periodically and, you know, go fishing once or twice a year and so on and so forth. But that was, that was my relationship with Tom Watson. That's fantastic. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to get involved with the developmental tour. I mean, was it just kind of a way to, I mean, I'm assuming the thought was, Hey, you know, get my product in front of some up and coming players. And if one of these guys hits, then maybe that's a pipeline of, of new talent. Was that the thought or was this just sure. a group? Listen, I, I could be altruistic and tell you that I wanted to give back and, you know, yada, 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 and that'd be a lie. What you do in something like that is you're running a business. Yeah. And if the developmental tour is a cost-effective way of getting your product in the hands of people who are visible, they don't necessarily have to be on tour because they go back to their home club and people know that they're, you know, trying to make it for a living and they're really good players and they see them playing with somebody, something unusual that works. I mean, I I can tell you a a golf story. Well, Syracuse, New York is noted. If you look it up, it gets the most snow of any city in the United States in the wintertime. Secondly, it is tied with Cleveland, Ohio is getting the least amount of sunshine as any city in America. Syracuse, New York is where I grew up. There are two people in the golf industry who lived in the Syracuse area for a considerable length of time. Me and Karsten Solheim. How's that for an oddity? I mean, I actually was think <laughs> I was literally thinking of him when you were talking. I'm like, this kind of sounds similar to the building putters in his garage, you know, the founder of Ping. Yeah. It kind of has that parallel. I mean, you're you have yeah, well. tight lies, he has the putters. And yeah, that kind of makes sense. Well, you had to do something up there in the wintertime. It was so damn cold and nasty. You didn't <laughs> want to go outside. But yeah. I, of all of all the non-golf areas, right. I mean, because of the weather and so on, I just think that's ironic. But yeah. anyway, when he was first getting started, he had the same issues. You know, he had trouble getting people to pay his, play his product. And he came up with the idea of giving uh, samples to college students, college golfers. And when... The college golfers came home on vacation, and the people at the club saw what they were playing. They wanted them. Yeah. And that catapulted his business, and that's how we got going. And that's kind of a left-handed answer to the developmental tour idea. Yeah. It's, if you, you, find, you find environments that are, that are you know, influential. Now, I forget what year it was, but it was a couple of years ago. But the tailor-made budget for the AJGA tour was over a million bucks. Wow. I mean, they, these big companies, 
this is why they this is why they're big this is why they're successful they don't miss anything they they know where the influential places are and they're going to be out there and the, you know if 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 it's if it's a 15 year old kid or a 13 year old kid that's playing XYZ brand and he's telling his pals how good it is that's influential and they know that so they send people out on you know all of these type stores and so we were kind of doing the same thing, although in a, in a very small way. So you eventually sell Tight Lies. You mentioned TaylorMade. So you sell Tight Lies to TaylorMade in 2012. Can you briefly walk me through just kind of the process of, of how that came to be? I mean, I know that kind of sets you up into semi-retirement. Sure. Sounds like you've been uh, playing a lot of golf and, and doing quite a bit of fishing since then. But talk to me a little bit about... When uh, was it just kind of a seeing a writing on the wall or was it just an offer you couldn't walk away from? Walk me through that if you don't mind. Well, first off, in 99, uh, I can remember clearly I was uh, sitting in my office and, and two guys came to the door. They had suits on and stuff, which was very unusual because our company rule was, I think it was no shorts, but it was certainly golf shirts and slacks. <laughs> yeah. we, weren't, we, we were not exactly formal. Anyway, these two guys came, they introduced themselves. And I, Barney Adams, we know who you are. We're from Wall Street, and we represent XYZ Company, and we think we can take it public and uh, expand your horizons, yada, 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 all that stuff. I, I was certainly aware that those kind of things happened, but had absolutely zero experience or knowledge or understanding. So uh, we ended up uh, making the decision to do that. And what I told these guys is, uh, you, listen, you've got to tell us what to do every step because I sure as heck don't know anything. Well, they did, and we were very fortunate. We had a very, very successful public offering. And for a millisecond, we were, you know, financially very sound, and it didn't last. And the reason why it didn't last is that two weeks after we went public, Callaway, which was a public company, missed their numbers. And they told the financial world that the golf industry was oversupplied and was in for some shrinkage. And, you know, things were going to be tough for a while. Well, <laughs> what that meant was that the people who were doing the buying stopped and they would make deals, you know, all right, I know our normal price is this, but we'll give it to you for 30 off or 40 off or whatever, just to keep the pipeline pipelines going with the big companies, with the majors, they wouldn't even talk to us. So all of a sudden we went from, you know, everybody's favorite story, so to speak, to a bunch of pariahs. We were dogs. We couldn't do anything. Right. And I can remember having a meeting with our people and, and it was very depressing. I, I had people quit. I had people literally break down. You know, they just couldn't, the pressure was just immense because here we were, this brand new public company. All of a sudden we're getting phone calls, people calling us names and, telling us we're a bunch of crooks and, you know, on and on and on. And I got the people, the folks together, and I said, guys, gals, I said, when I started in Abilene, Texas, I was a very, very smart guy, and I knew that I needed cash to keep the company going. So I was fortunate, and I got a contract to make clubs for a home shopping network deal. I forget exactly the name of it. But anyway, it was a contract that they paid on time and it wasn't big margin, but it was enough. I didn't take any salary or anything like that. The money went into the bank. That's what I'm trying to say. We're building up. I was building up cash to start the business full time. Right. I went back to the Silicon Valley, uh, 
you got a, got a got a job in the Silicon Valley, and kind of, you know, I kept in touch obviously with Abilene. But that's where my interest was. But we had to build up enough cash to to be a real company. I actually sent some of my salary back there, et cetera, et cetera. I was in the semiconductor industry, trade show. Well, I shouldn't say it. Prior to the trade show was the PGA show. I decided to take our little company to the PGA show. Drove to Abilene, packed up our stuff for a booth. Our, our booth location was right back in the back of the PGA show facility, right next to the men's room, because we could hear the toilets flush from where we were. Set up the booth myself, was there 10 hours a day for four days. Sold virtually nothing. People, you know, we had to practically tackle somebody to stop as they walked by. Nobody knew who we were. Loved every minute of it. I loved the environment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Packed the booth up myself, drove it back to Abilene, left Abilene, went back out to the Silicon Valley. Now I'm in the Silicon Valley. I'm in the semiconductor industry. It's about three or four months later. They have a trade show. Semicon, we call it a semicon show. Our, the company that I was in charge of at the time made testing equipment for uh, mil-spec, mil-spec 105D semiconductors uh, had to be at a very, very high level of uh, non-failures because these were, these were semi, semiconductors that went into parts that went into space and so on and so forth. So we did uh, centrifugal, centrifuge, I couldn't think of the word, centrifuge testing and uh, high-intensity failure testing and so on and so forth. Small company. We go to the show. I don't really like that business. You know, I went to a tech school, and it, these were all the tech guys that I never really associated with in school because they were all smarter than I was, and they just lived in a different world. But I had to have a job. So I thought, well, I'm going to be a good guy. I'll help this. We'll go to the show, and I'm going to help them set the booth up and so on. That's what I should do. So I did, and I'm there at the show, and I'm thinking, Boy, I've been here for quite a while. You know, it's uh, time to get a break or something, maybe, you know, whatever, a sandwich or something like that. Yeah. The show opened, at, I think, at 8.30, right? When I looked at my watch, it was 10 after 9. And I thought to myself, it's over. You don't belong here. I mean, if this show can make you feel like you've been here for hours and you've been here for 40 minutes, yeah. this is ridiculous. You're, you're in the wrong place. In the wrong place. And the, the venture capital people happened to stop by shortly thereafter, and I resigned. And they said, well, don't resign right on the spot. You know, if we don't have to deal with this little company. Give us a chance to find another company that maybe we can merge or do something with. So I walked around the show, and I actually found another company that did testing similar to ours, but like I would say like further down the line, so to speak, and introduced them. And lo and behold, it was great. They merged, and they had a nice dinner for me, and tell me what a nice person I was, blah, 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 blah. And I, and I asked him, they, I, I had a couple of years of salary coming and I asked him to, uh, as a, as a reward. And I asked him to pay me over two years because my theory was, you know, I'm going to go in the golf business and this will, I won't have to take a salary out of the company. I, I have two years worth of salary coming. That'll be your start. Sure. Sorry. Brilliant idea. Wonderful stuff. Get the car, go back to Texas checked into the Days Inn, which was next door to the uh, local diner where I ate most of my meals. I went into the office the next day. Now, our office was uh, left over from the old Pell's days, and it was a, a, a metal building that was uh, in a field, which we cohabited with various field uh, creatures, rodents and 
occasional snake and so on and so forth. That was, that was the way it was because that was their environment. We were just intruding. So I go in the next morning and I'm really excited. I mean, I, I mean, I would just the, my point with all this long story about Peach, the shows and stuff is how excited I was to be there. It just, you know, this is my dream come true. I got up at five 30 in the morning, ate at the diner. It was in the office by six at the latest. Of course, nobody was there. And there were some old desks around that we had inherited from the Pell's days. And I just grabbed one so I would have a, a place of my own. And I did, and I got a towel, and I was dusting it off, and I was opening the drawers very carefully because you never know who was going to take up shop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> we had lizards and stuff. And the one bottom left-hand drawer was full of paper. I'm thinking, what the hell is that? That must be, you know, stuff from the old days. So I picked it up, set it on top of the desk, got a trash can, just about to throw it in the trash can when I glanced down at the top sheet, and it was a demand notice. You're behind, blah, blah, blah. You're going to, you know, all of the threats and stuff that go with it. And it was current. Ooh. And what had happened was, because of my malfeasance and not paying enough attention, the money that had come in from my little idea to accumulate cash was, of course, gone spent and there was something in the neighborhood of $200,000 in debt. So if you can imagine the, it was like a blow to the stomach at 6am, you know, everything crashed and I handled it very diplomatically. I picked up my then briefcase and threw it against the wall. And then when I had to go down and pick up all the stuff that fell out, um, there was a, um, uh, like a checkbook type of thing. Well, what it was was a uh, uh, something that I had gotten in the mail. You know, back in those days, the banks were were soliciting people to sign on for credit cards and so on and so forth. And this was, you know, dear Mr. Adams, you know, you have a I think it was a fifty thousand dollar line of credit rating if you just sign here, et cetera, et cetera. And I hadn't paid any attention to it, so I kept it. And a few days later, I filled out a check for like. $6,409 or some odd amount. So it wouldn't, I don't know why I thought that way. So, but it was, so it would seem like it was a real bill and I got the money back. Uh, and of course a debit on the credit card. Yeah. Well, that led to my own personal Ponzi scheme. At one time I had, I forget the number, it was 40 or 50 credit cards and I would borrow off of one, pay it off with another, et cetera, et cetera you know, at ridiculous interest rates, but that's how I stayed alive in the early days. And you, you've got to be crazy, dedicated, insane to do something like that because no normal financial person would even consider that kind of an environment. But, you know, you, you got to survive. Yeah. Because I had no money on my own. Oh, and by the way, within two months, the venture guys and the new company got into a, a, a screaming match with each other over something. I don't know what it was. And uh, they got so mad that they decided that they shouldn't pay me. So my salary stopped coming in. And I remember when that happened, I just laughed. I said, well, that's about it. I don't know what else they can do. You know, that's my beginning. And that was my first 90 days, let's say in the golf industry. Wow. And yeah, it was, uh, 
like I say, I look back on it and it makes I mean, you wouldn't consider doing something like that today. Of course, I look back on it and it was just nuts. Yeah. I guess there's a theme here. The the, yeah. nuts, the nuts part keeps coming up yeah, over yeah, and over again. You're, I guess you're, that's the theme. Yeah, you're a little off, but that's okay. We like that around <laughs> right. here. That's okay. Um, all right, so talk to me a little bit about you know you sell you sell Adams to TaylorMade. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question. I apologize. That's Sony, a, we're a public company. Yeah, our stock gets hammered. We go through all this grief. I got, like I say, I have people, you know, literally people just couldn't stand the pressure. And when I, oh, I know, I'm sorry, I got off my story. When I got the employees together, I told them that story that I just told you. Right. I said, guys, you know, I've been through, I've been through worse than this. You've been here when we're first getting started. We'll handle this. We're good. We make good product. We'll get, we'll get through all this. And that was my message to the people. That's what I told them that story. Excuse me for You're forgetting okay. that. You're good. So we keep so we keep going. By I decided to hire a CEO. This is about a year or so later, because now as a public company, there's all of these you know formalities that you have to go through, which a I didn't care for. B I wasn't very good at, and C I wasn't really much interested in. I was interested in being back in the lab with the guys that were designing products and seeing what we could come up with that that I thought would, you know, catch the eye of the public, so to speak. So I hired a guy to be our CEO who had, who was much more professional than I am. In fact, he now runs Callaway Golf, which kind of tells you the story. Sure. And he did. He took over as CEO. Well, <laughs> I had one major investment group that had been with me since day one, and they got furious with me when I hired him. They wanted me to stay as CEO. And I, I, would, I remember talking to him. I said, guys, he's better than me at this. You know, it's not an ego thing. He's just better than me. You know, he knows these uh, regulations and stuff that you have to go through all the Wall Street game. He went to Ivy League school, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was a done deal, so they couldn't do anything about it. But they got so mad, they sold their stock, which was a considerable percentage of the company. It was like 20% of the company or so. They sold it to another group. This group became, over the time, disenchanted with the CEO because they didn't think he was doing enough to pump up the value of the stock. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? We're lucky to be alive for God's sake. You know, right. this is crazy. There's no good story that you can take to wall street to make us look good. They contacted me, this other group, they wanted to me to replace him. I said, I wouldn't do it because I think he's doing the right thing. They got mad. It's kind of a common theme here. They got mad and basically contacted enough other shareholders to put the company up for sale. TaylorMade got interested and they purchased it, telling us that they were going to keep it in Dallas as a as a fully operating subsidiary. I say us. I wasn't. I was really retired by then, uh, but keep it in Dallas as a fully operating facility. You know, great plans, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, what happened is that when the TaylorMade people left Dallas and got back to California. Uh, they found out that their business was not doing very well and it needed their full time and attention. And within a year, they had closed Adams down and moved it to California and basically uh, shelved it. It's out of business. Yeah. Wow. Talk to me a little bit about now you have had this great run in, in the golf business, um, you know, sold the company, you know, you can talk about, you know, like I said, you know, pretty much made made your, your had your successes 
and you've had a lot of people bring different products or different thoughts and ideas, uh, you know, to you to, to potentially get involved with. Um, now you have a product called the Stability Shaft, a new company, Breakthrough Golf Technology, awesome name, and uh, it's a it's a putter shaft. And you know, when I think about golf equipment or the consumer. You know, uh, it's it's real easy to, to get focused on, you know, getting a new driver because, you know, my old one lost its pop and I want to get this new shaft and this new bigger head. And, and of course, you know, every new driver goes further than the old one because that's just, you know, that's how it is. And then, but then, you know, if I'm not putting well, I immediately think, and I'm guessing everyone else thinks, well, I, you know, if the head, I need a different head with a different top line on it or something like that or or maybe I just need to practice more, or I need to get a new alignment aid or a new, you know, putting tool. I'm not thinking about the putter shaft. So tell me a little bit how that concept got into your mind. Well, remember I'm gonna preface this with a <clears throat> with a nuts word. We gotta we gotta have that going in because Oh yeah. It it, it makes no sense to here I am discouraging people. And then I turn right around and do ex- ex- almost exactly what I'm just trying to discourage them from doing. And a guy had come to me with an idea for a putter, and we had a conversation. This was in Dallas, and I knew him because he had worked for Adams for a while, and he didn't go with the Taylor Bay thing because his wife was a head nurse at a hospital in Dallas and didn't want to leave that nice job. So I'm talking to him, and I'm explaining to him that he's got no chance. You know, putter companies don't make it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the course of the conversation, he said, well, you know, when we're testing this putter, you know, we've learned that there's, there's something going on. You know, we've, there's, there's some aberrations in the data, and we think it's coming from the shaft. So making a long story short, after some significant testing with very, very sophisticated uh, equipment that is just not readily available, I mean, it's, it's, it's so specific. It, it measures ball roll into the second decimal place and so on and so forth. Sure. We learned that the shaft, and if you stop and think about it, now I had, to, I had to come up with an explanation of why over time. But if, as you know, the putter heads, if you let it go back to, say, blades and bullseyes and so on, have gotten larger and heavier over the years because the greens are smoother and faster. Right. And the putting stroke is kind of a pendulum stroke. And if you hit the putter off center, the face will twist and it'll send the ball offline. So to uh, mitigate that, the putter head manufacturers heal until weight the putters so the, uh, the face will stay more stable at impact to stop that uh, deviation, if you will. Right. Well, the only problem with that is that when they did that, they kept using a steel shaft, which is essentially 100 years old, and the steel shaft is not equipped in motion to handle that heavier putter face, and it actually oscillates slightly. And if the shaft is oscillating, the face is oscillating. So you trade in one off-center defect for another, and your results are about the same. You know, an interesting statistic, if you look at shot link data from the PGA Tour, yeah, which is very, very precise, the putting stats haven't changed in the last 20 years. Now, if you think of all the improvements in golf in the last 20 years, I mean, by, by God, driving distance are going nuts over driving distance. Sure. Golf balls, club heads, et cetera, et cetera. And the putting stats have stayed the same. 
That's hard to believe. In fact, when I tell people that, they don't believe it. And I said, well, here's the data. You know, I didn't make this data up. I just, I just wrote it down. And, and, and it's because, I think, because I cannot find any other solution, it's because of the face angle and impact being inconsistent enough that as the putts, especially as they get longer, like at three feet, they, they make everything. Sure. But from three feet to eight feet, their, their make rate goes down to almost 50%. And that's really amazing. There's the best putters in the world on, on pristine services. And if you go from three feet to eight feet, they make half as many. There has to be something else going on. And it's, it's in our measurements, and, and I did everything uh, with third-party measurements. I didn't I'd want to do it myself or do it with people associated with us because, you know, we tend to see what we want to see. It's of human course. nature. Yeah. So we so we do it third party, and we're we know that the the putter shaft oscillates and affects the the roll of the golf ball. Unfortunately, in the real world, if I were to shaft up the putter of my say next door neighbor, he might go out and putt worse with it. Right. Because the human error is of, the biggest factor of all in putting. Of course. And if he's got the shaft and, you know, we think, oh, my God, it's just what's going to happen or whatever. There's some thought that gets into his head. He could putt worse. I mean, I've putted worse with it. And the, the it isn't like you go out and make everything because you don't. Do you putt better? Yes, you do putt better over time. Your distance control is better, which is absolutely the key to putting. And the reason the distance control is better is because you've got square hits time after time after time. And some of them will go in, some of them won't. But you will putt better over time. But it's a very difficult, you know, people almost have to believe in it. Right. Now you're going to ask me, well, why in hell hasn't the tour adopted this? And the single biggest reason is the major manufacturers. They're paying $3 for a steel shaft. Our shaft is quite expensive. They don't want any momentum going on that would force them to lose that margin. Reality 101. Yeah. But if you get a, but like you did with tight lies, if you get, players in the PGA Tour that are using this shaft and eventually it catches fire, I'm guessing that's kind of the route you're going. Your route, you're thinking of a kind of a grassroots uh, uh, adoption of this specific Absolutely equipment. true. Absolutely true, and I'm frustrated that it hasn't picked up faster than that because this is I mean, we show guys data. We talked to a tour player. <clears throat> Let's say here, Ben, here, you're on tour. Here's your putting stats from last year. If you use our shaft taking the most stringent, you know, improvement. This is how much more money you would have made last year. Yeah. And it's huge. It's, you know, three, $400,000. Oh, okay. Well, I'll have to try it sometime. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah. Because they've got agents and tour reps and so on saying, oh, you don't need it. Don't worry about it. It's a tough gig. Yeah. So let me ask you about... Um, you know, we're we're turning this. You, you mentioned earlier about uh, asking about the just golf equipment in general. Uh, obviously, you know, we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, and once we turn the corner, and once you know we get back out on the golf course, at some point, obviously, the manufacturers are going to start selling their their new updated products, and you know, people are going to probably have less of a disposable income. And I'm just curious how how do club companies how does the the golf club market proceed you know can they go back to the all right every year we got a new driver and we got a new putter and we got a new we got this and that all this new stuff is that really sustainable moving forward it better be you know there's no plan b there's one word 
distance. Distance sells 9.9 out of every 10 golf clubs. I can remember back when I was custom fitting and I would have a wedge, let's say, that that really fitted the player much better than theirs. Let's say it was more upright and that's what they needed. They were tall or whatever. And they would say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd hit this as far as I hit mine. And I'm thinking, this is a wedge. Pal, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you try to hit it where you want to, you know, a couple yards at a wedge is a big deal. A couple yards at a driver, you know, unless it's hanging on the out of bounds stripe or something is nothing, but that's, but people are distance oriented to a factor of God knows how much it's, it's just the name of the game. And that's, that's how clubs are marketed. If you watch the ads and so on. Our new blah, 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 the longest iron we've ever made. The longest hitting iron we've ever made. I mean, I just read that in an ad. The longest, what, what does that mean? I don't know, but it, it's distance. And that, that rings the bell for people. Yeah. I'll, I'll play a game with you. I'll ask you a question. You're a golfer. Sure. Does shaft flex make any difference? Uh, does, uh, any difference in what? To the player. I mean, is there, oh. is there an optimum shaft flex for the player? Oh, yes. Okay. Then I have a question for you. The... Most successful selling irons in the history of the golf industry were the Ping I-2s. Okay. Every Ping I-2 ever made, without exception, had an X shaft in it. That means when grandma bought them, she liked it. When college kid bought this, another set, he liked it, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody played X. But why is shaft flex considered so important? Well, I know that if I have a stiffer flex shaft, at least in my experience, if it's stiffer with a my faster swing speed, I have more control over that than if it's a softer flex. Or is that how just, about your grandma? Well, I don't know about that, but I'm just saying I, I'm just kind of going. Because she's got a set and she loves them. Well, yeah, but does that mean they're the best shaft for her? Or does that just mean she loves them? Good question. I don't know, but uh, but it's the most successful iron in the industry. I mean, you know, I I understand that. I'm just saying that as far as I'm just saying as far as what is best for the player. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can. The get, reason I ask the question, yeah. it, it's kind of a. I do this when I do my seminars, but it does kind of tie into the putter shaft. The reason the Karsten did that, the shaft is a delivery system. The shaft doesn't it doesn't produce distance by itself. For example, it's right. not like you know it's an automatic thing. That the purpose of the shaft is to allow you the player to get the club head back to the ball as square as possible because it's square hits that deliver distance. Right. And so the, the shaft is your theoretically is your friend. It helps you get the club head back in that environment. And he didn't want any movement in the shaft because he figured that if it did, it was going to get in the way of you delivering the club head squared impact. Not at all. Unlike what we're doing with the putter shaft 50 years later, 60 years later. It's definitely an interesting theory, and I definitely like the idea of just adding consistency and solidifying the the putter shaft. That does make a lot of sense. Yep. It, it, I mean, you know, when I I get goes back to my days as a custom fitter. You know, A and F. What optimizes A and F? Square compact, square hit at impact. Sorry, I mean that's that's the way it is. Not. Not not the upper third of the ball, or not a quarter of an inch behind the ball, but at the proper you know ball to turf angle with the with a square club face. Now we have optimum uh, conditions, and in that environment, 
just as a story for you. I had a, I, this is way before launch monitors and stuff, but I did have a device. Uh, I can't think of the name of a lot. I forget that, but it was a, uh, it measured how far the golf ball went in the air. I can see it. And I can't think of the name. It's irrelevant. But, but my process for clubs custom fitting is if you walked up and, and you wanted me to custom fit you and I wanted to, I want to, you know, learn a little bit about you, have you make a couple practice swings. And I'd say, how far do you, how far do you hit your five iron to give me an idea of what I was dealing with? Sure. I never, and I fit hundreds of golfers. I have never one time had a golfer underestimate how far they hit their five iron. <laughs> of course, I hit it two ten every time. Every time two ten. <laughs> exactly right. And then if you do a good job and you fit them, and you really do a really good job, and they're hitting at one ninety because before they were hitting at one seventy, they look at you like you're a bum. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me get you out of here, Barney, on a couple of questions I just wanted to ask you. Sure. Um, what's a product line or, a, you know, a product that you thought was going to take off on the on the PGA Tour that just didn't? Mm. Or a club that... Well, that, or... back, yeah, I can only talk to personal experience. We, I, um, many, many years ago, I substituted the lower third of a putting shaft with a graphite shaft because I wanted it to be more stable and I it, it get a, a, a solid feel of graphite because graphite does feel good when you, you know, when you hit it properly. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good product and nobody cared. So that would be, that would, I guess that would be my answer. Okay. And so, uh, ironically, it's not terribly different than what we're doing today, but I didn't really understand the shaft oscillation thing at the time. And then also just as an, as an opposite, what's a product line that you saw on the PGA tour that just, you just shook your head. Like, I can't believe these guys are playing this crap. Well, there's a lot of that. Not so much today, because uh, frankly, today, if you, you know, if you're in the golf equipment business, even if you're starting up, whatever, you got enough money, it's hard to get bad product. I mean, you can go to, you know, the Orient where the products are made. All the club heads are made now. And well, they used to be Taiwan when I was doing it, but they moved out of Taiwan to other locations where it's less expensive because there's still hand grinding and so on involved. And you can go to one of these manufacturers and get excellent product. It may look eerily like one of the majors. So we'll put a little bar at the top and paint it green and call it the green monster or something like that. Right. It does absolutely nothing, but then you can't accuse, be accused of copying. And I'm being a little facetious, but I mean, the product is really very good. What, what it is not is any better. Gotcha. Uh, you know, the ads that say we are, again, I love the, I love the ad. This is the longest driver we have ever made. Why didn't you make it last year? Good because your yeah other ones weren't very good. So I'm glad you're catching up. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) I mean, if you think about drivers, what's what's the ad every year? Longer, right? Yep. One one word answer. Well, does that mean the ones the year before were that bad? Well, that's that's kind of where I don't see how the model. I don't get it. Like, yeah. So that's a conversation for another time. I think we could we could tackle that <laughs> again sometime soon. Um, well, you might want to you might want to get a psychologist on the line. I know. I, I, I know. Um, sure. Well, well, Barney, this has been uh, this has been great. Been uh, fun to to kind of pick your brain and and learn the story of Adams. You know, I I played Adams when I was a kid, and you know, just really fascinating hearing about your journey in, in the game. Uh, again, you know, I'll definitely put links to the stability shaft in the show notes of this episode. And we'll definitely let people know where they can find it. And I appreciate you joining me and coming by the back of the range. Well, thank you for having me on. And I hope it's very soon that I'm looking out the window 
wherever I am, car or house, and seeing people on the golf course. And there you have it. Special thanks to Barney Adams for joining me here at the back of the range. Go check out the link to Breakthrough Golf Technologies. The link is in the show notes of this episode. If you have any questions on that, shoot me an email. Don't forget, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and every previous episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time for another episode here at the Back of the Range.